When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Russian forces score a hit on a British Challenger 2 tank. We analyze leaked reports that Kim Jong-un may travel to Russia and Roland Oliphant is on the ground in Odessa. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 5th of September, one year and 194 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, Asia correspondent Nicola Smith, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and former tank commander and Telegraph commentator Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by talking to Roland, who's calling in live from Ukraine. I'm at a petrol station in the Odessa region, um, to be specific. I arrived in the country yesterday. We've done a fair bit of driving. We've been on the road in Odessa and also out in the region trying to speak to who we can, kind of looking at the the grain issue, basically. So the kind of the collapse of the grain deal. Obviously, there was this meeting yesterday between Erdogan and Putin, which um, didn't produce any breakthrough there. But essentially, that's obviously... The whole war has had a knock-on effect on Odessa, the city itself. And since that grain deal collapsed, there's been a lot of bombing by the Russians in Odessa region as they try to hit the alternative route is getting stuff out via the Danube, basically, um, on barges. And that's where they've, you know, tried to shunt a a lot of the agricultural traffic. It's not a large enough route to take on the huge kind of volumes that would have been going out of, of the major ports before the war, places like Mikhailov and Kherson and Odessa. But that's basically what we've been doing and looking at. Thanks, Roland. What's the atmosphere like since you've arrived back? Has anything struck you, you know, slightly different to what you expected? We know that Ukrainian schools have gone back. What do you make of the, the sort of ambiance there? I mean, it's late summer. So, so down here in the south, it's, it's still a very glorious kind of summer. So it's 25 30 degrees in Odessa itself it's much more lively than when I was I was last there in I think it was probably February or March and it was grim it was well you know winter is grim the blackout was very strict there weren't many people around the right now 
bars are open, nightlife is happening. It's got that kind of that ineffable kind of Odessa kind of feeling. If, if you know anyone who's been to that city knows it's got this special kind of slightly anarchic, slightly hedonistic you know kind of port city feel to it and you can I, I was quite surprised to find that that is very much you, you can feel that you kind of i didn't I, last time i was here i felt like this is you know a city at war and, and all of that and stuff but uh, area is an area that hasn't really been touched by the war there have been strikes on odessa itself and there, there are currently there's a russian air campaign against the the infra the industrial infrastructure associated with the exports of grain and stuff like that but it's a place that's quite a long way from the fighting i would say the war feels fairly distant um from here although it's kind of ever present i mean that said in my in the few conversations i've had with people since i got here and i have only been in country for about what 24 hours <laughs> now definitely the sense of of fatigue at 18 months of war i mean no one denies that the, the first thing lots of people say is that you know we, we are tired um that's definitely part of the mood thanks Roland. the final question from me really is uh what's next are you going to be staying around the region or moving on what, what do you know do you have a sense of what your plans are for your reporting yeah i think i'll be moving on we've had a pretty good day of reporting today and hopefully we'll have a decent dispatch you know later this week uh, look, looking at this issue, looking at the, the, this Russian bombing campaign along the basically along the Ukrainian-Romanian border, and then we're going to move on. I think we'll probably, I'm not sure exactly where we'll probably, you know, end up in the capital, and then we'll be doing some travelling and reporting elsewhere in the country. But I don't really want to flag my movements too in too much detail, if that's okay. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Roland, for joining us and do stay safe. And we hope to hear from you again when, uh, when, when you can join us. Thank you very much, Roland Oliphant, on the ground in Odessa. Well, let's move on to some other updates, uh, key updates from the war. According to analysts at the Institute for the Study of War, Ukrainian troops have reached the third and final layer of a key Russian line of defence. George Barros, a Russia analyst at the ISW, said Kiev's forces have reached fighting positions near Verbove in the southern Zaporizhia region. This was discussed yesterday by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. Verbove is a key nodal point in the so-called Sorovkin line, the main Russian line of defence in the area. Uh, Ukrainian forces continue pressuring the line between Verbove and Robotine and may be setting conditions to breach the line in earnest. That's from Mr. Barros. A breakthrough would provide the first test of Russia's deeper defences, which Ukraine hopes will be more vulnerable and less heavily mined than areas its troops have assaulted so far. Just to put this news into some strategic context, remember that Ukraine's generals want to breach the line and push down towards the Sea of Azov, splitting Russian forces in the east and south of the country and severing their supply lines. Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, has come out and said that Ukraine's armed forces have not achieved their goals on any front. A quote from him, the most tense situation is that on the Zaporizhia front, the enemy has engaged brigades from its strategic reserve, whose personnel have been trained by Western instructors. Moving on, in Russia, authorities were forced to shut major Moscow airports while shooting down at least three drones targeting the capital. The Russian Defence Ministry said that its air defence systems destroyed two unmanned aerial vehicles over the Kaluga and Tver regions, which border Moscow region, and another was downed closer to the capital. Russian news agencies reported that almost 50 flights were cancelled or postponed early Tuesday from the four major airports around the capital. 
Moving back to Ukraine, the UK's Ministry of Defence has said that Russian authorities in occupied Ukraine are planning to hold elections for the first time later this week. According to the MOD, the votes are set to take place between September the 8th and 10th in parallel with the elections being held within Russia itself. It did note that, and this is a quote, while over 1,000 candidates have been identified, there is a lack of qualified, experienced and willing candidates, according to some reports. There is also an absence of independent candidates that are not members of the Kremlin-endorsed parties, indicating that these will not be free or fair elections. It finally adds that voting has already started in Zaporizhia and in Mariupol. Uh, Yesterday, we spoke about the meeting, and this is uh, what Roland alluded to as well, between the Russian and Turkish presidents in Sochi. Well, today, Turkish media is reporting that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said that Turkey is in close contact with the UN on reviving the Black Sea grain deal. Speaking to reporters after the talks with Vladimir Putin, Mr Erdogan added he would discuss the issue with Secretary General Antonio Guterres at a UN General Assembly this month. He was quoted by TRT, Habertürk and some other broadcasters as saying that the latest UN proposal sought to address some Russian demands. Um, Just to recap there, Moscow refused to extend the deal in July, complaining that a parallel agreement promising to remove obstacles to Russian exports of food and fertiliser hadn't been honoured. It said restrictions on shipping and insurance hampered its agricultural trade, though it has shipped record amounts of wheat since last year. And the UN General Assembly is set to take place later this month, September the 18th to the 26th in New York. So we will, of course, be watching this closely. Finally, just news coming out of Ukraine. Well, this is what we'll go to Hamish in a second, I think, for. But we've seen footage released by Russian troops on Monday appearing to show a British-donated Challenger 2 tank, a tank obviously we've discussed many times on this podcast, in flames on a roadside in the southern Zaporizhia region. The clip marks the first reported evidence of one of the tanks being destroyed in Ukraine. The vehicle was said to have been used by the 82nd Air Assault Brigade, an elite airborne force. The UK supplied 14 Challenger 2s to Kiev in January. So let's start there with our guest, same Mr. Breton Gordon. What did you make of the clip uh, and what would you want our listeners to know? Yes, hello. Good afternoon, everybody. As you say, we've been talking a lot about tanks recently. And, uh, and last week, uh, I wrote a piece about the main battle tanks and its place on the battlefield. And I think there are a whole host of very interesting elements around this. I mean, first of all, the really good news, which has just been disclosed by defence sources, is that the crew survived in the Challenge 2 and it's not a write-off. So that, that is significant. The, the Russians, when the, they posted the video this morning, it was a bit difficult to work out exactly what it was, but actually the very clear telltale signs of a Challenger 2, you can just make out there is something called the Thermal Observation Gunnery Site, a sort of box on top of the main gun, the main armament, that you can just see, that, and that confirms that it is a Challenger 2. Now, for this to be headline news in Russia, and Russia have already lost, at a conservative estimate, around 4,500 main battle tanks. I think it just shows how rattled that they are by certain pieces of kit. The Challenge 2 itself, if you do stop the video, you can uh, you can see that there's a lot of smoke coming out of the tar- turret. Um, it, it, it's hardly on fire. There is a bit of fire next to the turret. But the fact that the crew has survived is is very good news. I expect the crew managed to get out and pull what we call the fire suppression system, in effect fire extinguishers, which would have put out any fire 
And um, as we discussed previously, the Challenger 2, along with the Leopard 2, have armoured charge bins. In other words, the high explosive that is used to fire the projectiles out of the main armament are stored in, in very secure armoured bins that prevent, if there is an explosion, if somebody, say, dropped a grenade into the turret, they wouldn't go off, as we've seen often with the, the Russian T-72s, T-64s, that uh, they don't have this. And if there's a fire in the turret, there is an explosion and usually the turret itself comes off. And it re-emphasises the point, tanks are all about firepower, the main armament and the supplementary machine guns, mobility, the engine to be able to move around uh, the battlefield and protection. In other words, the armour to allow people to go on. So I think what we've seen with the Western tanks, Leopard 2 and Challenger 2, and the Leopard 2 attrition rate is about the same. There are a lot more of them and they've had five damage so far, is that the protection is really working. It's, it's significant that this is the uh, the first challenge to that has been hit directly by any enemy fire. There were some roadside bombs in Iraq back before 2010, which damaged and, and very sadly crew members were seriously injured in them. And there was a challenge or two in the second Gulf War, which was hit with friendly fire. But this would be the first time direct enemy direct fire has had an impact here. Being a bit of a, going back to, and we were talking about the breakthrough and everything else, we know that the Challenger 2s have been used as, what I think the Ukrainians call them long-range snipers, as it were. Now, a sniper with a 120-millimeter gun is is pretty potent, but uh, because the Challenger 2 has a greater range than the Russian tanks and the Leopard tank, it's ideally suited for that. But it's also mark equipment, and we're hearing a lot of positive news about breaking through lines. The fact that the Challenger 2s are, are, are where they, or this Challenger 2 is where it is, would, would lead credence to that. But I think it's, it, it is very good news that the, uh, the crew have survived. Hopefully this tank will be back on the road. I would appeal to people in Whitehall and Westminster and Ministry of Defence and others just seeing how important this is to the Russians, what a key bit of equipment. I think we should be, you know, getting all our Challenger 2s out to Ukraine because uh, that's where they're going to do, have better effects and everything else. And as in the piece we wrote last week, it, it's how you use the tanks that's important and used in the manner they're supposed to be. They can be highly effective. But uh, yeah, it, an interesting day, but delighted that in this case, that the crew are safe. Well, thank you very much, Hamish. I'm sure we'll come back to you later for other updates. But can I go to our Asia correspondent, Nicola Smith? Nicola, uh, you've written a fascinating analysis on a potential upcoming meeting between Kim Jong-un of North Korea and Vladimir Putin later this month. What do we know so far? Hi, David. Well, so far, we know what was leaked in by intelligence agencies, we presume, to the American media, to the New York Times yesterday. They've cited US and allied officials who, who have said that Kim Jong-un is expected to travel to Vladivostok on the Pacific coast of Russia, near the border with North Korea, to meet with Vladimir Putin. And they have reported that the timing could possibly be the 10th to the 13th of September. It would coincide with 
the Eastern Economic Forum, which is taking place at a university in, in Vladivostok. And these officials have said that it, that the two leaders are expected to discuss military cooperation, which could include North Korean weapon sales to Russia to to replenish its stocks in Ukraine, although we should say that both sides have consistently denied that they're doing this. We don't really know where this intelligence comes from, although the New York Times does also say that in August there was a delegation of some 20 North Korean officials, including some who are actually in charge of security for for Kim Jong-un, that they travelled by train to Vladivostok and then flew on to Moscow. And so we could be looking at another couple of potential stops by Kim Jong-un if he does go there. There's been one report of the Vostochny uh, Cosmodrome a space launch centre, which is about 950 miles north of Vladivostok, and possibly that he could go on to Moscow. Thanks, Nicola. Could could you spell out the sort of broader strategic implications of this potential meeting and and just talk to us a little bit also about how the South Koreans and the Americans have reacted? So if this meeting goes ahead, then there would be strategic reasons for it and transactional reasons. And so if you look at the the strategic reasons, first of all, Kim Jong-un clearly wants to have more visibility for his growing partnership with Russia and China. That's really been stepping up in the past few months. And this, first of all, helps to break North Korea's diplomatic isolation. It's under sanctions because of its nuclear weapons program. And it also helps it to become part of a more unified front against the United States and to really try and work against United States policies on Ukraine and on the Indo-Pacific, Russia and North Korea have a shared enemy in the United States. And we've seen considerable alarm recently in Pyongyang, Moscow and Beijing as they've been seeing closer ties between the US, South Korea and Japan. So for both Russia and North Korea, this is a deeper alliance of convenience between two now pariah states who, who see an opportunity to to upset Washington's po- policies on Ukraine and in Indo-Pacific. For Russia, it gets more international support for its war. It can use North Korea to really be a thorn in the sides of, of America, especially when it comes to America's efforts to curb North Korea's nuclear weapons program. What, what we've seen in recent months is that Russia's dropped any pretense whatsoever of being a constructive player on the Korean peninsula. It's been blocking more severe sanctions against uh, Pyongyang, even though North Korea has carried out more than 100 weapons tests since the start of 2022. And Russia and China have been both accused of not implementing existing sanctions. So in terms of the reaction from the South Koreans and the United States, President South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol flew today to the ASEAN summit in Indonesia. That's the meeting of, of Asian and um, Southeast Asian leaders. And he's heading then to the G20 summit in India next week. And he said ahead of, of his trip that he wants to try to urge world leaders to enforce UN sanctions on North Korea and to block Pyongyang's illicit actions, which are funding weapons programs. With the US, they have also repeatedly urged North Korea to to stop any arms negotiations with Russia and abide by its previous public 
commitments not to do so. But there has also been some speculation that the the leak of this intelligence could be a tactic by on the US side that we know that Kim Jong-un is notoriously paranoid about his security, about his travel. Um, he likes to be very secretive about it. So the fact that, that these details are now emerging, it could serve as a disincentive to him. US officials have also said that previous intelligence leaks have actually stopped arms sales from going ahead. It's hard for us to tell whether that's true or not, but it, it seems to be some kind of preferred tactic by Washington. Thanks very much, Nicola. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I um, I just would like to put things into perspective. I mean, by just hearing the fact that Russia is seeking to buy weapons from North Korea and everything we've heard in recent months and weeks, um, you might get an impression that relations between Russia and North Korea have always been that excellent. But, you know, if you look back, if you look 10 years back or 15 years back when Vladimir Putin at least tried to pretend that he was trying to build a normal country in Russia, Russia did play a, an important mediation role on the Korean Peninsula. It was one of the few countries that the North Korean leaders could speak to directly. N- now and again, Russian officials w- would travel there. But all of this time, you know, if you if you talk to Russian diplomats privately, they would basically be making fun of North Korea and what an outdated and sometimes ridiculous dictatorship that is. Obviously, none of this was in the open. None of this was ever said in public. But if you look at what Russian diplomacy was busy with in the past, I don't know, 30 years since the fall of the um, Soviet Union, they were busy fostering a new relationship with Japan or with South Korea, especially with the European Union which used to be the main trading partner of, of Russia. And uh, North Korea was basically a symbolic place. It's sort of a vestige of Russia's Cold War past. But no one was really invested in the relationship with North Korea because everyone understood that this is not where you would, you're going to get investment or technology. And to me, I think it speaks volumes, the fact that Russia would need uh, would be so desperate that they would be needing to source weapons in North Korea it basically shows of how much its own arsenals have been depleted, despite all of those statements to the opposite. Thanks very much, Natalia. Nicola, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. But also, I mean, you mentioned the sort of secrecy that Kim Jong-un likes to cultivate around his plans. If he was going to go to Russia to meet Putin, how would he get there? Well, first of all, I would agree completely with everything that Natalia said. She makes some, some very good points about how the, the relationship has shifted between North Korea and, and Russia and how it's very mutually convenient for them to help each other out just now. On the, the travel to Vladivostok, it, it's expected that Kim Jong-un would take his armoured train to Russia. He's done this before. He, he likes to make a bit of a spectacle when he travels but he has travelled previously to Vladivostok in this green, it's a bottle green train, very distinctive. It has apparently 21 armoured carriages, so everything's bulletproof. It's a train that was favoured by his father and grandfather. Before him, they were apparently afraid to fly and they preferred to travel by train if they could. And of course, you'd expect that it's very comfortable inside with, it's been reported that it has plush leather sofas, conference rooms, 
and he will certainly be traveling in style, even if it's a very long journey. He also took that train to Hanoi in 2019 when he went for his failed summit with then um, then US President Donald Trump, and it took him 60 hours to get there. So he certainly seems to be fond of train travel and prefers to shun air travel when he can. When he went to the Singapore summit, China had to lend him a plane because his Soviet-made aircraft was deemed to be unsafe. So that's the expectation. Well, thanks so much, Nicola, for joining us. Is there anything else uh, you think our listeners should know and understand from from this story? I do think that one, one angle that hasn't really been looked at too much recently is just when you're seeing these geopolitical shifts in the Indo-Pacific, just what are the implications for the UN Security Council? Because we have now a body that is supposed to be overseeing sanctions against North Korea and trying to prevent its nuclear weapons program. And it's just not really functioning as, as it should. As to, it has two major members who are blocking the toughening up of sanctions and have been accused of not even enforcing the existing ones. So I, I do think that's something to watch out for in the future and just how the UN Security Council can navigate that. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicola. Natalia, can I come to you? You've written up the astonishing story of the Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine. I mean, where to start in this story? Can you just talk us through what happened? I mean, it's not the first time we're hearing about a Russian soldier defecting to Ukraine. We've um, heard other stories before, but typically it would be someone who would either surrender or find a way to Ukraine. This time, it was someone who actually flew to Ukraine on his battle helicopter. This man has been identified as Maxim Kuzminov. Uh, he's 28 years old. He he used to serve in a military unit in Russia's Far East, actually quite close to where the North Korean leader could be traveling to if he were to visit Russia. And this man suddenly... Uh, appeared on Ukrainian television over the weekend. In a short interview, he said that he, quote, felt sorry for what is happening right now, killings, tears, and blood. So apparently he, as pretty much all of the Russian military, he has been involved in war effort. He served on a MI-8 helicopter, mostly, as he described it, bringing spare parts for fighter jets. And apparently he's been in contact with the Ukrainian military intelligence for a while, and six months after he first established contact with them, he was on a battle. Uh, he was on a uh, mission somewhere very close to Kharkiv, very close to the border with Ukraine. And apparently, at this point, he got in touch with them, and they basically gave him the green light to detect. So he flew with his helicopter, as he described it. He was flying at a very low altitude with a radio silence, and so no one could track him. And he crossed into Ukraine. There's one. Um, murky detail about the story is the fact that kind of helicopter is typically served by several people. It's not a one-man aircraft. I mean, I guess it could be flown by one man, but typically a, um, a crew consists of several people. And that incident was first reported by Russian sources, actually. It was Russian pro-war bloggers who first reported it at the end of August, saying that they were aware of one Russian helicopter landing in Ukraine, as they described it, by mistake. They thought there were several, um, there were several members of the crews and that they were killed on arrival. 
later, the Ukrainian military intelligence explains, again, it doesn't strike me as a um, terribly clear explanation, the way they described it, the other members of the crew, uh, quote, decided not to surrender and died right after the landing. The pilot himself, Kuzminov, apparently struck a deal with the Ukrainians. He spoke on camera about his frustration being involved in a war that doesn't make sense, which is a, a criminal war. And just this afternoon, he actually appeared in front of reporters in Kiev. He told them that his family is safe. Apparently, the Ukrainian intelligence helped him to get the family out before he defected. And again, it's a rare victory, I would even say a propaganda victory for Ukraine, because obviously a pilot flying on, on his own helicopter is it's, it's quite something. It's, it's quite spectacular, even though we're not seeing large-scale defections that this one is quite stunning as it is absolutely natalia i mean have you got any sense of how this is being reported in in russia have we seen anything or are they really keeping a, a lid on this story Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, I mean, I haven't seen a word either on Russian state TV or in state media. Again, as I said, the only thing they were early reports just before the Ukrainian military intelligence unveiled all the details, the, the report just suggested that the, pir- the pilot got lost. Of course, no one would surrender willingly. What I also, but again, obviously, they're also pro-war uh, military bloggers and a couple of them did write about Kuzminov's case, mostly in a sense that to them it was another confirmation of their belief that the Russian defense ministry is not doing a good job and that it's not uh, taking care of, of their troops well and, and is not um, keeping tabs of them on them. So that's why people just go around and fly helicopters to the animal, to the um, enemy land, just like that. Thanks so much, Natalia. One more question, uh, well, one more story, really, that would be great to hear your thoughts on. It's the start of the Russian academic year. How has that gone? I mean, we've seen that Vladimir Putin has been speaking to school children. What did he say? Yeah, propaganda in Russian schools is something that has interested me a lot because all the way up until the war, we didn't see we didn't see any attempts, frankly, by the Kremlin to indoctrinate Russian children. The Russian regime has been described as kleptocracy. It is widely believed that Putin and his cronies were pretty much busy lining their own pockets, and there was not much attempt to instill some kind of ideas in Russian children. But as the war has been going on, it became clear that fighting is not going to end anytime soon and the Kremlin is going to have to explain to the citizens why why are Russian troops in Ukraine, what's happening there, why do they have to stay there for such a long time. And um, uh, this is basically the first of the second academic year for Russia at war. But a year ago, we were something like six months into the invasion. Now it's 18, going 19 months. And today, uh, this year's first year of school, I find pretty stunning because they were different you know, you could see different angles about how the uh, state is trying to meddle into school education, even into primary education at, d- at different levels. It all started with Vladimir Putin himself, who had an open lesson of sorts for Russian schools. It was a televised meeting for a group of uh, hand-picked students in which they would ask me questions, but at the same time, he was mostly busy presenting his vision of Russia as a besieged fortress locked in an existential battle with the West. Among the things that he told the kids was the fact that uh, Russia is invincible and um, um, a defeat is not on the table for it um, at all. Uh, there was also quite a stunning moment that I personally found quite chilling. Uh, Putin 
also opened five new schools in, in Russia uh, via a video link up uh, talking to the school's teachers and administration and staff. And in one of them, he was speaking to the staff of a school in Mariupol, which is the Ukrainian city which was flattened by Russian bombing last year. And um, for that school opening, a Russia-appointed official in Mariupol brought in a young student, a seven-year-old boy, I believe, who apparently had a pre-prepared speech and he offered Putin, quote, a big thank you for taking care of my favorite city. Mariupol, yes, so that's quite stunning that Russia has to prove once again and again that it is Mariupol is a Russian city and it's not going to surrender it back to Ukraine. But on on the other front, you know, you could look at what was happening at ordinary Russian schools. And at most places, it was just an ordinary first day of school. But at the same time, we've been seeing quite worrying reports from a lot of places that of something that would be unthinkable even a year ago. They were militarized or military-tinted celebrations and parade on the first day of school. At one of them, at least three of the students posed, posed with machine guns. They were dressed in combat fatigues. In another one, um, I think it was the local governor who personally picked a family in which a father was killed in fighting in Ukraine and he personally took their child to to school. So, yes, that's de- definitely quite an unusual first day of school for everyone. But there you go. I'm Russia, I mean, Russia has been at war for 18 months, so this is what we have. Thank you very much, Natalia, Nicola, Hamish and Roland. Any final updates we should talk about before we go to our final thoughts? David, yeah, if I could just comment on a couple of those stories we just covered. I I was just listening to Ben Wallace, the outgoing defence minister this morning, talking about the Putin reduced to begging Kim Jong-un for weapons. And I think he he says something like, this is how it ends, Mr Putin, the once mighty Russia scrabbling around looking for friends and begging North Korea for weapons from the 1960s. Uh, And the story we've just heard about the uh, defecting pilots. So I'm, I'm working on a piece at the moment about what I'm calling the Ukrainian Special Operational Executive. This is working behind the lines, death by a thousand cuts, and recruiting a pilot like this seems to be me classic SOE type action. Uh, you know, the big bangs and blasts and the tank battles that, that we hear every day, you know, grab the news. But um, actually, all these really important operations happening deep behind the lines are probably having a, a massively significant effect on the Russian logistics to be able to support the front line and also Russian morale. So I think those are two really significant stories over the last couple of days. Thank you very much, Hamish. Let's move to our final thoughts. Roland has messaged me and says he might be able to join us from a moving car. Roland, can you hear us? And more importantly, I guess, can we hear you? OK, well, look, you asked me a bit about the atmosphere in the country, and I thought I might talk a little bit about the politics. So the RADA, the Ukrainian parliament, will be meeting in the next few days to to vote on the resignation or the firing of Alexei Reznikov's defence minister and the appointment of his of his nominated successor. I had a long conversation with Alexei Koncherenko, who's the MP for Odessa, last night, just before he got on the train to go up to Kiev to take part in, in that assembly and that voting. Now, he is an opposition MP. He's never been a great fan of President Zelensky or his party. So take what he says with, with that kind of point of view. But he was pretty scathing. He said, look, you know, Reznikov has been a good diplomat. He's, you know, he's done well at securing Western aid. 
But as far as he was concerned, this resignation was better late than never. That the MOD is an institution with such huge institutional failings and problems ranging from salaries to the mobilization procedure to demobilization to kind of rehabilitation of wounded soldiers, everything. And, and, and this sense, this added sense that why is it after 18 months of war that volunteer organizations um, are still fielding calls from individual brigades and battalions for anything from tourniquets to drones to anti-drone rifles to anything else. And I think the significance of that is, is partly that, that there, is a, there is definitely a, a, a domestic kind of political conversation going on in Ukraine. I think politics is, eats back. There was a time when it paused in the immediate aftermath of the invasion. Everyone's rowing in the same direction. Everyone is still rowing in the same direction. But that kind of political truce is, I think, coming to an end. I think everybody is, is actually thinking, OK, well, we're not going to have you know, the Ukrainian constitution kind of forbids elections during wartime. But one day the war is going to end. One day there are going to be elections. And I think that it's, what's the word? It's something that goes hand in hand with war fatigue, having 18 months of war kind of normality returns. It's something worth watching. I think definitely opposition players and also Mr. Zelensky and his team are probably looking ahead to what, what their political futures are going to be after the war. Thank you very much, Roland, and best of luck with your reporting. We hope to hear from you again soon. Nicola Smith. I think the the next couple of weeks is going to be a fascinating time between North Korea and Russia. And if the, as people have speculated, it is the US tactic to try and discourage him from going, it'll be a very interesting, a very telling sign if he still goes. It, It will really show us how far he is he is willing to go to court Russia as a future and bigger strategic partner to further his own interests. Thank you very much, Nicola. Natalia Vasilieva. Yeah, I think I'm definitely watching out for the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive. And what I heard this morning probably sounds more promising than anything we've heard in recent weeks. And uh, stunning, stunningly, we heard it from Russian sources, from Russian pro-war bloggers who are reporting a major counteroffensive as you have mentioned, in a in a completely different patch of the front line to the east. And apparently they managed to cross over the defense line quite quickly and advancing in an area where they would they might be catching Ukrainian uh, Russian, Russian troops unawares. So that's it sounds like it's a very fast-moving story and it looks like we're going to be hearing some developments very soon in the coming days, I would say. Hey, Mr. Bretton-Gordon, would you like the very final words? Yes, thank you very much indeed. We give the Germans quite a hard time, but but we're just learning today that they have ramped up production of ammunition and have delivered significant amounts of ammunition for the Gepard self-propelled anti-aircraft gun. In fact, it's two guns, 35 millimeter, putting an awful lot of lead into the air, incredibly successful against drones and attack aircraft and others. And I think as we hear that Putin is scrabbling around uh, to unsavory sources or similar source to him, North Korea, for ammunition. Um, it's an example that the, I think the rest in Western NATO should follow to make sure that Ukraine absolutely has all the ammunition it needs. Uh, and as I said earlier, all, all the capability like Challenge 2, because as we're hearing, things seem to be moving in the right direction. But that 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 small flow, we must... The West must 
try and turn that into a torrent so we can get this dreadful war over as soon as possible. So, yeah, well done the Germans on that one. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.